Black Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. On today's episode, we explore the dynamics that influence people to make the kinds of choices that they make what allows us to be effective in our decision-making process, what causes us to be ineffective. Is it possible for us to, by changing our perspectives or our mindset on the kinds of factors that influence our decisions, to get to a point where we can have more success trying to achieve our goals? We're calling this one the Immersion Complex. Let's get into today's episode. So a core aspect that we want to start with here is trying to understand, trying to come up with some way to articulate what is the basic mechanism by which we seem to be making decisions and evaluations about stuff in general. And I would think of this as sticker labeling. And by sticker labeling, I mean that we look usually for what is the most obvious, uh, readily expressed, most uh, easy to perceive indicator or communicator of what something is. And labeling as a general phenomena, right, is is not new. But I'm specifically calling it sticker labeling, which obviously stickers are not a new invention. Um, you know, they're more contemporary than, you know, antiquity, of course, but they're not like new, you know, to society this year. Um, so, right, it's been around for a while, obviously, you're just putting a little adhesive on the back of something. And what that did is it created a really easy and effective way to introduce a label or a concept to an object. And you go into the grocery store, you usually walk through the produce section. And I think a part of this is probably by design to sort of make us feel that, you know, the grocery store is a sort of more wholesome food environment when the reality is the overwhelming majority of goods in a grocery store for sale um, are sold as some form of dry goods that are boxed and preserved. And that's like if you eliminated all of that, you know, all you would really have left basically would be that initial space. But by bringing you through those initial areas of sort of more dynamic um sort of food space of, you know, here's fruit, vegetables, maybe it brings you by the, you know, deli counter, maybe it brings you through the bakery section, depending on the layout of the store, right? That's having an impact on how we perceive our experience. And, you know, not every store, grocery store does this, but, you know, it's a strategy that you see being used 
And with that produce, right, there are competitors in that space, people producing different products, people trying to get different people to consume their oranges versus somebody else's oranges and, you know, bananas, avocados. And a lot of times, you know, this differentiation is made off of taking, you know, sometimes something smaller than a fingernail, but a sticker about that size with an icon or a logo and sticking it on that fruit. And that somehow, right, changes our perception of the value or the significance of that item. And that we then make decisions based on that sticker. And that sticker labeling effect is really powerful in causing people to reach conclusions about what actions they should or should not take in any given instance. And I think this phenomena raises the question, um, first of all, is this a aspect that you know, happens in a non-literal sticker labeling sense in society. Do we as individuals, um, through our own action, or as individuals acted upon by society, do we find ourselves, you know, a product of or influenced by the sticker labeling phenomena, the ease in which we can communicate a seemingly substantive significance that might not actually be grounded in any kind of like evident truth, um, do we see that as something that is like a common practice or common issue influencing our decision-making processes as we move through life and, and make all of the choices that we make? And we're constantly making choices. I mean, some of the choices are so automatic that we, we've sort of ingrained them um, to the point where they're just a force of habit. And the idea of making a different choice is so abstract to us that we wouldn't necessarily even think of it as a choice. But everything we do is a choice um, by by some means, um, because there's always an alternative. It's just that that alternative is sometimes so undesirable that um, it doesn't feel like it's a choice. And we change that, right? We look at the costs and benefits of those choices, right? Influences our thought process as we as we take those steps day to day. And, you know, and then in our longer term processes, that's where we start to usually start to feel more like we're making choices because those are where we're stepping out of these practices of ingrained habit and routine. And we are forced to try to use our brains a little bit more actively and, and dynamically and stretch our ability for cognitive reasoning. And in making these choices, oftentimes what we're doing, right, is we're trying to find some basis of reasoning. And this sticker labeling effect, I think, points to the fact that we take the simplest, most readily available indicator of sort of significance or value, and we pursue that. But we also know that we're oftentimes sort of very able to be immune to the significance of labels. You know, putting a surgeon's general's uh, warning on cigarettes hasn't exactly stopped society from smoking cigarettes. And what you're looking at there is like this, you know, these multiple competing stickering values, right? You know, the value of, you know, whatever sort of marketing is leveraged, you know, by the brand um, that is selling the product versus the value of the, you know, brand of, you know, the Surgeon General or the, you know, federal 
government trying to, you know, communicate some information, you know, because the reality is people who sell cigarettes do not have the best interest of the consumer at heart. They have, I mean, that's a great example, right, of how sticker labeling isn't necessarily this thing done to provide us a, you know, essential service or value. Um, it doesn't necessarily positively influence our process. And then we also have sort of the non-visible, but I think still very much sticker labeled phenomena of, you know, is smoking cigarettes something that, you know, feels countercultural to people? Do they feel that they are, you know, engaging in some sort of like a fundamental act of self-expression or vivality? I mean, I mean, the idea that smoking cigarettes is something that's sort of more life-affirming is kind of odd because, you know, developing the kinds of, you know, illnesses and diseases. I mean, you would think, frankly, that just the um, impact on your oral health and your breath and just how just generally disgusting they are would be enough. But, you know, to not even want people to get to the point of long-term consequence. But you see that, you know, people, you know, pursue these things. And, you know, obviously addiction is a phenomenon too, but it's also the case that, you know, when there was sort of a broad shift in terms of like, oh, wait, cigarettes, they don't cure asthma and they're not this, that, and the other thing. Um, people just stopped, right? An overwhelming majority of people just stopped smoking for the most part. Um, and so, right, what that means is that, you know, not everybody is, you know, as subjected to that, you know, addiction is a more complex variable behavior than um, drug resistance training education, um, drug and alcohol resistance education would have us think. So I think that you know, there's a lot of evidence then, right, to sort of say that we can take this sticker labeling phenomena, right, out of the domain of, you know, the fruits and vegetables section of a grocery store and extend that phenomena uh, to something else. Although it is interesting to think that um, you see stickers on the fruits, but you don't really see stickers on the potatoes, <laughs> you know, and is that because, you um, you know, the, the value, the competition value, or the sort of appeal of potatoes um, is sort of just so ubiquitous and generic and, you know, sort of like not exciting that the need to sort of like compete in that space is different. Um, it's also probably harder to grow fruit than to grow potatoes, but this is not an agricultural podcast, nor am I qualified to comment on that in any way, shape or form. Not that that's ever stopped me before, but so I think we can then ask the question about the sticker labeling phenomena. How do the perceptions of others, whether they're real or equally powerful, sometimes maybe more powerful, or if they're imagined, how do those perceptions impact the decisions that people make? Right? And that's when I emphasize that again, it can be real perceptions or it can be imagined perceptions. And I think that these are equally powerful because it's the operative word is really perception, right? You know, because I think to us, if we have a perception, it is functionally real. And we could externally, you know, especially when we're evaluating other people or other situations, we can sort of discriminate between what we think is a real, you know, phenomena versus an imagined phenomena. But you know, if it is sort of tangible and impactful to somebody, it's real to them because it is 
having an influence, right? So real is anything that influences people's behavior in this kind of context when we talk about perception, you know, but we also externally can say, you know, how validated or grounded or essential is it to take on that aspect of perception if there's also this other dynamic in which we can evaluate it and say, okay, that's not like fundamentally evident. That's not fundamentally true. So that leads me to a hypothesis. If the perception of a consensus opinion, real or imagined, is strong enough, then people will perceive actions and choices as dichotomous and make decisions to alleviate nonconformity stress. Okay, let's say that again. If the perception of a consensus opinion, be it real or imagined, is strong enough, then people will perceive actions and choices to be dichotomous and make decisions to alleviate nonconformity stress. Okay, so what do we mean by this hypothesis? Well, first of all, right, I think what we're most susceptible to is the perception of, you know, what is the consensus of what we should or shouldn't be doing, right? And that sticker labeling, right, is this, it's coming from somewhere, and there's sort of this authoritative energy to that, I suppose you could say, because it's this notion that, well, you know, when you're looking at these kinds of phenomena and trying to understand them, you know, we're looking for sort of some guidance, right? And I think if we felt wholly competent, um, right, and by the way, there's evidence that suggests that the more competent people might feel, the less competent they might actually be. We've talked about that Dunning-Kruger effect on other episodes, um, but something to, to consider here too. But at any rate, um, what we're looking at is that if we feel that it's a consensus or it's like sort of the, the commonly understood phenomena that it must be true. And that's that sticker labeling effect that if there's a sticker, well, that, that seems somehow like official or real or validated to us, right? It's hard to differentiate between the potatoes because they don't have anything sort of on them. But if you have bananas with stickers on them, and then if you have bananas with no stickers, I think people are more likely to consume the bananas with stickers, unless you're at a, you know, organic foods um, co-op context, in which case maybe it would be the opposite effect. But there's going to be prevalence, right? And there's also the star-bellied sneetches phenomenon, for those of you Dr. Seuss, you know, fans. But again, right, the real or imagined component we're emphasizing here. And you know, if, right, it's strong enough. So it's the degree to which we perceive or assign sort of consensus-like status to a sticker, right? And we've defined, by the way, just to be clear, we've defined stickers as phenomena that can be validated or can be abstract. And by, or in different terms, that it might be a literal sticker, right? Or it might not be like something that you can explicitly point to and say, aha, there's the sticker, but like we all recognize that it has essentially been labeled, that it's had some sort of label imposed upon it. And so then what we're perceiving is the label and the values that the label is trying to translate to us versus actually processing the item or the good in question. And I think what this does is it creates this sense of like, well, this one has the sticker, 
the desired sticker and then these other ones don't. So that means there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. And so that then becomes a dichotomy that things can be sorted into essentially two categories and that, you know, there's this you're doing this thing that's right and you're doing this thing that's wrong. And, you know, of course, we're going to get more and more into the connections to, you know, training and endurance sport, but probably conditioning and training and preparation and practice for any different kind, many different kinds of things that people want to improve at. But, you know, to just throw in an initial connection, it would be the perception of, you know, if you're a runner, should I do five times a mile? Right. And then you're going to agonize over how much rest you should take because everybody's heard of five by mile as a workout. So we don't question that. Right. That's been clearly labeled. But, you know, the idea of the rest interval is is not really explained and what should be done there. Right. And so then we don't know what to do and, and we go into crisis because we don't know if the choice we're going to make is going to be the good choice or the bad choice. And the belief then is if we make the bad choice, we've totally failed. And that's where we get to that point of nonconformity stress, that it's not just this social uh, anxiety of a desire to fit in. But it's this sense of consequence, right? Like, why would we fear being non-conforming in the first place? Well, we fear things because we fear the potential consequence of them. Now, maybe our ability to articulate uh, and comprehend that consequence can be, you know, very, like, easy and straightforward. And maybe sometimes it can defy any kind of like articulation, but, you know, fear is driven by some concept of consequence and that anxiety is driven by some concept of consequence that we need to avoid that negative outcome. Um, And, you know, when those things become what we would define as irrational, it's when our perception of that stuff is, you know, extremely influential, you know, and we need, we have the driving need compulsion to get out from under that feeling. But, there's no like actual thing, you know, that exists in any kind of valid, uh, validated form that we're reacting to, right? And that's where we get into those two different kinds of real. There's what's real to us in our process of thinking and deciding, and then there's what's real in terms of other, like, um, you know, perspectives, right? Like, what can we actually define, um, you know, in a genuine rational sense as being real, and. I think we can, you know, look at this as a kind of Nash equilibrium, you know, one of my favorite, you know, concepts um, from economics is Nash, the Nash equilibrium, which, you know, we've covered this before. But again, the Nash equilibrium is the notion that, you know, the most sort of optimal outcome for competitors is to be as close to the competitors um, in strategy and, and approach as possible. And this nonconformity stress, I think, is something that is very much tied into, you know, a concept like Nash equilibrium, that we believe it to be most competitively optimal to do the same kinds of things. And that's why if you look at athletic stuff online, you know, whether it's people doing um, workout videos or vlogs or people posting content on Instagram, or what have you, it's all rooted in that basic core, uh, you know, concept of people are all creating very, very, very similar things. And I I think a really powerful example of this actually happens in writing. Um, And it's not just limited to this, but it's easier to talk about the contemporary 
before you talk about the historical for most people because the contemporary is where we have the strength of intellectual familiarity. But, you know, the kind of banalities that drive the construction of people's descriptions on, you know, Instagram um, are very much like insipid. (laughs) It's, you know, loathsome to have to try to read and process some of the stuff and have to, right? Obviously, we don't have to, but, you know, it's, it's sort of presented to you um, so much that it, it starts to feel like it has this same sort of, you know, generic, you know, authorship voice that something like Soviet propaganda would have and becomes readily recreatable. And, and, and I think that's what enables people to recreate it, right? But why would we all do the same thing, even if it's kind of like, cringy and, and awkward and, you know, using words like humbled and, and grateful and blah, 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 you know, well, because it's that, you know, nonconformity stress of like, there's this pressure that we feel, you know, people feel like they need to write like that. And there's also the work product example, which is another form of pressure and, and sticker labeling that like, that's the only thing that we see, right? And so like that, that's what's desirable, you know, and then we make, we talk about things like, the algorithm as a way to try to sort of, you know, dissociate ourselves from responsibility for our kind of like lack of creative (laughs) thinking here. But, you know, I think that at the same time, I don't know how much we can really blame people or ourselves for this, because this sort of fits to that concept. So in that Nash equilibrium of desirability, we can say, right, or Nash equilibrium of conformity, right, which is that people moving towards behaviors and choices that fit in that consensus. It's like you have this sort of like do behavior. Imagine that point as like a star, right, in a in an empty space. And the behaviors of people are moving through that space drawn to that star. Okay. It has a pulling gravitational effect. And the behaviors outside of that star those are don't behaviors. So you have do behaviors represented by that star floating in space, and then you have the don't behaviors. And in this dichotomous mindset, it's you have all of this space, and it's the single point that is correct, okay? And that star in that empty, unclear, ill-defined, ambiguous, vast space, that star is the sticker that is labeling for what we want to do. And those are the do behaviors. And then that is why we exist in a state of dichotomy. Because we can categorize things as, you know, you know, the the joke, you know, there's only there's two kinds of people in the world, right? People who blank and people who blank. You know, and you can say that about anything, right? And that's why it's so absurd. Um and, you know, these kinds of concepts, right, become, like, extremely, extremely limiting, right? But we're willing to accept that because there's, a, you know, the, you would think the anxiety should be that, wow, what if this singular point is, is wrong because it's such a tiny fraction of all that otherwise, what we're saying is otherwise a vast and empty three-dimensional plane, right, in which this singular star point is existing. But that doesn't seem to be the behavior. And the more that people that squiggle their way through to that star point, 
the more people will then in turn do that, right? And so you start to empower that label, right? And this is obviously how marketing works and, you know, branding works and, you know, uh, companies and manufacturers and producers of goods and services of all levels have, you know, come to realize that it's not about describing the value of the good. It's about just like normalizing your sticker label so that when people look at products, they're going to pick the thing that they're familiar with because of that sense of doubt about, well, if everybody walks around with Nike logos all over the place and you're looking at products and then you see the Nike logo and you see this other thing, you're going to pick the Nike thing, right? You know, and that's not rational, right? Um, it doesn't It's not actually like a, you know, driven, logic-driven, rationally reviewed action. It's just what we do because the sticker labeling is telling us what to do. And rational choice theory is usually what's used in traditional economic thinking, classical economic thinking is a way to try to understand what's going on. And, you know, one of the, you know, validating aspects of it, which is at the same time the limiting limiting aspect of it, is for people like Adam Smith, you know, when they're Wealth of Nations and author and whatnot, you know, people of this nature are, are sort of thinking about the world and the sort of people with genuine agency in society as basically being people who are similar to them, you know, in, in identity, right? And it's kind of these like, you know, um, people of the same class, religion, education, you know, ethnic background, and, you know, obviously there are differences, but the scale of those differences um, in those people are very small compared to the total potentiality of difference when you look at, you know, human population writ large. But, you know, in that time, it, that was not the frame of, of thinking. And it doesn't mean that it was a good, uh, it was informed by, you know, ignorance, but that's what drove, right, and makes rational choice theory make sense. If you look at people, the more that people have in common, the more likely they're going to make the same rational decisions because they have, are more likely to have the same um, mechanisms of thinking and reasoning, and they're going to be responsive to the same sticker values. Um, and, you know, in particular in that time when, you know, their peers are influenced by the Enlightenment in which rationality was like a popular behavior, um, you know, probably more so then than it is now, unfortunately, Um not that I would want to live in that time period. I don't, I'm not saying that things were better then. It's just simply the case that I think being rational and being intellectually curious is not as socially fashionable um, as it was at the time. So, like, it makes sense, though, in that cultural space to reach a conclusion like rational choice theory, which is that people are going to identify the, like, very, like, def definable, tangible, impactful you know, positives and negatives to actions, and they're going to pick sort of the most optimal, right? The sort of mathematically correct, calculable solution. And if you extend this concept, though, um, into a domain or a space where you don't have that same kind of like centralized, uh, generic behavior around how people perceive what is and isn't rational, then you start to get to the limitation or the outer bound of that. And I think, you know, things like Nash equilibrium are both rational and irrational. You know, in a competitive situation, if you're racing, right, it makes sense to be as close to your competitor as possible. But 
we also see in endurance sports the strategy of, well, I'm going to run or ride or, you know, basically establish a velocity that I can't maintain, but I think that I have a greater level of aerobic conditioning than this other individual. So I'm going to, in theory, bring them over their capacity and tire them out before I get tired. And then I might slow down, but they'll blow up, you know? And so, you know, you see that, you know, this kind of like Nash equilibrium effect doesn't mean that you're going to win, right? It doesn't mean that you're going to succeed. It's simply saying that's what people will do. And that most people don't, you know, don't feel that there's a position from which they can achieve any greater advantage. So this kind of like process becomes reasons for engagement with things that we're going to do things because we see them as being the do behaviors and we are perhaps even more so motivated to avoid being associated with the don't behaviors and if you go back to the doing five times a mile workout you know that's definitely a product of that you know phenomena right that that's if that's a do behavior people will do that and people running, you know, 1Ks and 2Ks um, in a culture or society that predominantly measures things um, in an imperial system. And even though they, you know, have um, metric distance tracks, still tries to run <laughs> the equivalent um, of, you know, imperial distances, like the 1600 and, and the 3200. I mean, why? Just run the 1500 and the 3000. Nobody runs the 1600 and the 3,200, but we're also not going to run the two mile or the mile, right? So you get into these weird situations that just don't really make any particular kind of sense, right? And, you know, why are high schoolers running the 1,600 and going around talking about their mile time? All you have to do is back them up a few meters, and then they can actually talk about their mile time. And, you know, does that matter? Is it like a massive cultural crisis? Of course not. But at the same time, is it just sort of ridiculous and absurd to not just like, well, if it's a mile, make it a mile. Like, why can't we just run the mile? Another easy example of this is how people are socially responsive towards different training speeds. And this is true in cycling, I think, as much as in running. Um, and some people always want, people want to blame like the contemporary mediums and media through which we communicate and express and experience things. And I think that that's like totally inane. This idea of Strava and social media and, and this kind of stuff is you see this pattern occur throughout uh, the study of history where, you know, people in societies, you know, at their contemporary time, um, you know, start to get frustrated or irritated with patterns of human behavior. And then they just look at, well, what is something that's new or different? And we're going to blame it on that. And that's basically an extension of the belief that, you know, if people would conform to the usual ways um, or what people perceive to be the usual ways in their contemporary time, um, that these issues wouldn't be happening. But when you look at this stuff across the scale of time, what you see is that, you know, humans basically haven't really changed their behavior. We behave in the same ways. And then there's just like different tools or apparatuses, you know, by which we're able to sort of like engage in that behavior. And so the aesthetics of the behavior are different. So the core behavior is not. For example, with Strava, um, I think this idea of, you know, representing training as being, you know, oh, what well, people are fast and you know, people being like, oh, I can't, I, you know, I used to be on Strava, but it's like such a toxic space. And these people 
make us feel like you have to run fast. So that's just, first of all, wrong. You know, some people are going out and they're exercising, they're exercising at the speed at which they want to exercise. It's as a culture, we've stickered labeled velocity in the context of sport is something that has significant sort of meaning. Okay, I got a stride uh, power pod finally a couple weeks ago, and I've been using that running. And, you know, I maybe I would eat my hat later for saying this, but I feel very confident after having used it uh, multiple times in all the different kinds of training sessions that, you know, I perform, that it's definitely, I would say, accurate. And I'm, I'm convinced of that. Um, and I think the power, you know, a watt is a watt. And I, I think that they're doing a very good job um, getting those watts, you know, and, and certainly they're giving a consistent and constant data point that is allowing you to, is correlating very closely to effort and sort of gives you a better way to sort of equivocate, um, you know, to or equalize between, you know, different uh, sessions over different kinds of terrain, etc. And one of the things that I've observed with this is when I go and I run lactate threshold intensity, I'm about 290 watts right now for that effort. And then I noticed that when I was like, okay, I'm going to go out and do like an easy run, right? Or just sort of like a comfortable, easier run, you know, a run in the context of where I'm tired and I'm not looking to add fatigue and I'm looking to be more rested. I don't like to use the word recovery. There is going to be an episode down the road about recovery, but not today. And I discovered that when I was out running that my watts were like 230, 240. And I said, wow, you know, if I was on the bike and I'm trying to go easy on the bike, you know, I do not go this close to that intensity, right? I'm not 30, 40 watts, whatever, you know, under that, right? Because I'm getting up towards 250 watts as I'm doing these easy runs. And so then I'm like, okay, I'm going to run and I'm going to keep it under 200 watts. And I'm running 1130 pace. (laughs) And it's like, I mean, unacceptable to me, basically, to do that. But I've been doing it anyway, because it's like, well, what do I have to lose? I'm not exactly setting any world records. So, you know, one of the liberating factors of not being um, an elite athlete is that you can try different things and if it doesn't really work it doesn't matter because you're not doing that for income right and so taking my the liberation i've achieved through mediocrity um has allowed me to sort of like experiment with things more freely i think um and you know it's appropriate to keep it down below that you know and and you can i can feel the the benefit from that um you know, and that's helpful, right? But without that kind of other information, you know, the sticker labeling effect of 1130 pace is very bad. And it is true that, you know, on Strava, depending on who your your peers are, or if you're somebody who uses Strava, like, um, you know, a uh, consumer media platform where you like to follow a lot of like, um, you know, notable elite level performers, um, you know, but you're going to see people who go out and they run run pretty fast all the time. Um, you know, people who seem to, like, I think a lot of college-age uh, athletes, runners, uh, you tend to see this phenomenon of everything has to be below seven-minute pace. And they're just always doing all of their activity below seven-minute pace. Because there's something, you know, sticker labeling value of having that six-something pace, right? And we've mentioned this sort of before in other contexts. 
but that's a really powerful thing. Or on the bike, right, riding 20 miles an hour, you know, and it's like, it would be really cool to be able to do all your rides at 20 miles an hour. But once you're riding 20 miles an hour, you're not going to care anymore because it's not exciting or significant. It's just your normal. So we pursue these things because we're like, you know, in awe of the sticker label value, right? And then some people, that brings us back to people saying, well, I had to leave Strava because it's such a toxic space. And I just don't, it's not toxic. It's just people are doing what they're doing. And it's our, it proves my hypothesis, I would say, or provides evidence in support of that hypothesis that um, the perception of a consensus opinion that, well, I'm, you know, experiencing nonconformity stress, I'm experiencing anxiety because I'm seeing people do these things that I'm not doing. And if I try to go out and create those, it fails. And, you know, people like I they can't handle that information. I can't look at what people are doing and see that as being effective. But that's because you're looking at it as a dichotomy, right? It's like, you know, and it's weird how we perceive other the aggregate of individual training decisions to then be representative of the do behavior versus the don't behavior. You know, and I'm just going to keep running 1130 pace <laughs> on these runs, you know, and unless I lose a significant amount of body weight, um, the reality is it's not likely that, you know, or if I see a significant increase in higher level aerobic fitness, you know, I'm going to sort of be continuing to cruise around at 200 watts and to 180 watts and 190 watts, and that's going to continue to be 1030 to 1130 pace. <laughs> that's just kind of how it is. And I don't know that that's like a bad thing, but that is the thing. That's kind of like where it is at. And, you know, when I was uh, coaching cross country, you know, we had a dozen, Baker's dozen or so athletes running between 1640 and 1530 for 5,000 meters cross country. And you know, we would do the, the workouts um, and the, the sessions. And I think that the, the bias, the sticker value bias there is to always be like, oh, yeah, well, it was these particular sessions and, you know, they were these are the workouts. And but the thing that we did more frequently is we ran really slow and I took those athletes out and I took them on the runs in between. You know, I was, you know, doing my exercise. Right. But I, you know, don't weigh 140 pounds anymore and wasn't in like particularly great shape. Um, and, you know, so we'd be out probably running nine minute pace, <laughs> which you know, for me felt like, oh, okay, whatever, right? Didn't feel like 11.30 pace, slow. But to me, it was sort of like, oh, we're out here jogging along, but I still feel, you know, that I'm doing enough activity that I'm enjoying, you know, sort of doing some level of exercise. But if you're running, you know, what they're running, you know, people running 4.30s, 4.20s in the, who can run that for the mile, you know, out running 9-minute pace, 9.30 pace, you know, a lot of the time, like, that's probably like run me running 1130 pace, you know, so but and and for them, you know, that was always sort of a, a bit of a thing of like, well, you know, we're running so slow, but we raced very frequently. And so they were just constantly getting these 
uh, you know, evidence of like, well, I'm racing fast. And when you get to, when you get to, or because you're in a team environment, you have to do that many races. And then they're always, you know, they're going well, you know, the majority of the time and you're improving, you know, very, it's very evident to you that you're getting faster. It's, it's easy to be like, yeah, forget it. But for a lot of us, um, you know, as sort of independent amateur athletes who race if, and when we feel like it, you know, the training becomes an even more significant aspect of what we're doing. And it's not sort of, oh, I got this race coming up. So I'm doing my routine before the race. It's sort of the training starts to become an aspect of performance in and of itself. And so I would, of course, agree that, you know, things like Strava and, you know, people's YouTube workout vlogs allow us to see training in different ways that we couldn't before. But I also think that the reality is we have sort of a cognitive um you know, capacity to look for performance and make comparisons with or without something like Strava. It's just the social means by which we do it changes. And so then people act like they've, you know, rediscovered or aha, you know, here is the problem with society is Strava segments, you know, whatever. Um, So let's shift from dichotomous thinking then. Okay, how could we think about this instead? Well, I like the idea of things existing on kind of a spectrum or a continuum. So if we think of this continuum, it's not a dichotomy anymore, but I will define for you why I think the dichotomy can be derived from this. So at the base of this, we have a null point. This is the point at which whatever you're doing for training is not having any impact. It's not contributing to what you're doing. Um, There's that, and I'm paraphrasing very loosely, but there's that, you know, Peter Coe, thing that, you know, if you can't explain why you're doing something, you shouldn't be doing it. And I'm sort of conflicted about, um, you know, Peter Coe in terms of being kind of like a all-knowing guru or oracle of training. But I do think that that's very, like, insightful slash obvious that don't do something unless you know why you're doing it, right? That's kind of fits into the duh category of things. And I think if we think about, right, things having a purpose, the null point would be, it could be as something as basic as like, just like being asleep (laughs) is going to have no impact. But there's a scale of activity you can escalate from the state of being asleep, Um, you know, physical activity where you're still experiencing kind of like a null state and like the nullness of it is kind of diminishing, but it's still effectively null. And as you progress and and you elevate and, you know, whatever you go from walking to running speed or whatever, you know, increase your Watts on the bicycle. At some point you reach kind of an effective point where you're going to actually be producing something as a consequence of your energy or effort. And as we progress beyond that effective point, right? There's going to be sort of increasing effectiveness where per unit of work, um, you're exchanging that for greater unit of response, greater unit of benefit. And then their next point on the spectrum that I would define is kind of the diminished point. And I would say this is the point at which when you continue to add additional sort of units of work, you see a smaller level of return, Right? And this would be diminishing returns in economics. Um, it doesn't mean that you're not producing things, by the way. It just means that you know the return is 
diminishing and the, and the additional you're not you're receiving less profit relative to expenditure if you will and then as you go past that then you will reach a point and I'll just call it the non point where you're 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 nothing you're doing is is beneficial to you you sort of reach that point of failure so you could draw a breakpoint on this spectrum anywhere like let's say we draw this breakpoint um, most probably the most logical place to put it would be to put it right through that effective point and we can say everything to the left of that is a don't behavior and then that effective point that's the do behavior right but they're not a and b they're not you know singularity things they're continuum things where you can do one thing or the other there's an opportunity to do a variety of different strategies and approaches as you're looking at what you're trying to accomplish in training i think this means that good training decisions and decisions about process towards accomplishment x right whatever specific target somebody is trying to work towards and achieve or attain that shouldn't be driven by other people's behavior because people's behaviors are falling on the spectrum and these spectrums have to be relative to ourselves so you can't make decisions about how fast you should run um or how fast you should ride or how many watts you should produce you i mean the reality is you can make these decisions um we should be really saying that you shouldn't uh make these decisions because people certainly do make decisions in this manner you shouldn't make decisions based on what you're seeing other people doing because even if even if they are getting awesome results from that that only is successful because it's on their spectrum of null to effective to diminished to non right it's on their space right and even if you can run the exact same times as somebody or even if you have the exact same ftp as somebody that doesn't mean that you should be doing what they're doing because the domain of influencing factors is not constant for everybody simply isn't and you know we can extend this to you know saying that the elite result is not the probable result the average result is the probable result why does this statement matter i think it matters because we seem to see in that idea of the elite result the sticker value that if people can pull out an exemplar um athlete and say well i had this athlete did blank Well, there are coaches every single season. You know, right now um, in New England, right, you know, the weather is becoming nicer out, right? It's warmer, um, right? The leaves are on the trees, the flowers are blooming, and that means it's time for outdoor track. And that also means it's time for some, you know, coaches, I think, unfortunately fall into this pattern of, well, if you had the one athlete, and we've mentioned this before on the podcast so if you've listened to a lot of episodes this is not a new concept but um it's you know very pertinent here too you know that if you've had the one athlete then it's like well you know that's that's the that's the result that if you really do these things this is what is possible and um that's the elite result and so that's a sticker labeling phenomena that you know you you that athlete success right or those performances or those PRs that 
the best PRs that were produced by any individual of all the individuals who have, you know, consumed that training process, that singular elite result, right, which could be a total outlier, um, becomes the sticker label. It's like, well, I once coached an athlete to do blank. Okay, well, we've talked about in the Deus Ex Machina episodes about how like misleading that concept could be. You know, that athlete probably would have achieved a comparable outcome in every other situation. You know, the question is how many people, what percentage of your athletes are, are doing well? You know, and, and yes, it does matter, you know, if the athletes aren't doing what you're doing, what you want them to do, then yeah, you can't really conclude whether or not that works. But sometimes it's the case that if athletes aren't doing what you want them to do, then like find something else, okay? Because that also exists on the spectrum. But we seem to see the exception and um, as the kind of like expression of the rule, right? So like that elite result, that sort of thing that is perhaps the exception to the rule, the outlier, um, is like seen to be the thing um, that matters. Because in American culture, and probably by extension, a lot of developed market democracies, we want to, and perhaps out of societal uh, stability purposes, we need to, I don't know. Um, But we want to believe, certainly in the fallacy, that we can all be that exception, okay? And, you know, it's like, I'm going to be rich, is a ridiculous, ridiculous statement, because the concept of richness um, is relativistic, you know, like, wow, people running times. Well, what you're kind of seeing now is that, you know, times run at, you know, junior level athletes, you know, high school level, college level athletes in general are going up significantly due to whatever, you know, composite variable shift um, that's changing, right? So that means, you know, that elite result is now less and less valuable, okay? And, you know, that sticker labeling, right, is is shifting, and I think what, that's what we want to be recognizing is that what we're being presented with um, as the do behavior is that singular point floating in that space. But that's because that's what we've chosen to illuminate. And rather than say, wow, you know, how can we have all of this other space? Why should we just assume that it's just sort of empty and that what we need to do is all scramble to play king of the hill on this one particular point? And... Um, A a metaphor here would be to imagine a sheer, imposing cliff face, okay? And at the top of that cliff, that's where you see your absolute potential. Okay, what could you, because there is a limit, ultimately, to how fast you can run or ride your bike. There's a limit, right? I mean... At absolute best, right, you can't exceed the speed of light. So, like, yeah, there is a limit, okay? This idea that people will just get faster indefinitely and is just absurd. Um, obviously, that can't happen. So, that limit, right, exists somewhere for everybody. As individuals, we have an absolute limit. And that's, you know, and that limit is also limited in part by our life circumstance, right? That's, that's a part of that phenomena. And now imagine you know, an attempt to scale this sheer cliff face using two different ladders. But imagine this cliff face is so 
high and it just sort of extends into the, the night sky and people can't perceive there to be a point at which the cliff face ends and then the sky begins. So it just sort of seems to be this indefinite plane. And, you know, in this concept, the goal is to scramble up the side of this. And so, you know, people, an individual, right, arrives at this cliff face with two ladders. So well, I want to see how, what, how high up this cliff face can I get? And one ladder has 10 rungs and the other ladder has 30 rungs. Now, which ladder is going to get you higher up the cliff face? Okay, the ladder with 30 rungs is going to get you higher up. And that's very easy to see, right? And so neither of these ladders are reaching the actual top of the cliff. But what they're doing is they're changing the product potential, right? So the absolute potential is not being attained by either of these methods, but one of them and one of these methods, the product potential is closer to the absolute potential than the other. And this, I think, is the concept of what training really is about, is it's about trying to make decisions about what we should or shouldn't do. And it's not just that there are two ladders. It's about figuring out how to design the ladder with the requisite number of rungs that are going to get us to our absolute potential. And I think sometimes we see with training culture that there are these sort of generic methods and methodologies about how we should or shouldn't work. And, you know, it's sort of like the discernment between outcomes is sort of on the basis of talent. And, you know, what we do, though, isn't a product of talent. It's a product of process. The talent illusion is simply because some of us are more responsive to given processes. Um, You know, you can have an athlete training 25 hours a week, outdoors, on their road bike, you know, following all of the, you know, best sticker label practices of that, you know, being at that Nash equilibrium, they're able to really conform to all the narratives that we see about this stuff out there. And then you could have an athlete who might be training 12 hours a week, and they might be doing indoor riding and, and running. And both of those athletes could be at the same level of fitness. So ask yourself, you know, which of those two ladders is sort of taller? And I would say that the 25-hour-a-week ladder is the 10-foot ladder, and the 12-hour-a-week ladder is the 30-foot ladder. Okay, now maybe they're both only five rungs up that ladder. Maybe they're both eight rungs up that ladder. Because if you're 25 hours a week, you know, realistically, what's your room to apply further intervention towards improvement? Very little, right? So if that's all that you're allowed to do to train, right? If that's your do behavior, right? And that's what you, you have to do that because the stress or the anxiety of not conforming to that is overwhelming, Okay, you have now limited your product potential, okay, as something that is going to be much lower than your absolute potential. And you're probably not going to really improve much more. And people will just sort of be like, well, you know, that's how good you are. Well, no, that's how good you are given that intervention set. If you use a different intervention set, you know, the other example, the 12 hour a week example of doing some other forms of fitness and exercise, well, What's your potential to add there? Well, significant, right? Significantly more potential to add, you know, interventions around practice that will lead to improvement. 
And so what we want to be asking is the question, how do we create growth and training or in approaches, frankly, to anything in a general sense? I think to do this, we have to change our metrics of self-evaluation. What does self-evaluation mean? It means, where was I before? Where am I now? You know, can I specifically identify, define the things that are allowing me to be better, right? Is that a real, definable, discernible thing, right? And what scale of improvement do I have to still make? And, you know, that's going to be influenced by our sense of process, okay? Is if you think that the 25 hours a week of conventional, standardized, this is how you do it, training. I mean, that's the history of the development of training, is that people in the contemporary sense believe very deeply in that sticker value. And they say, well, this is what you should be doing. But if you do what that sticker value label is, you're not going to have the outcome of the elite person who slaps that sticker on their t-shirt. You're going to have the outcome of the average person who slaps that sticker on their t-shirt. You know, if you have a coach who coached a 405 high school miler, I don't know, like random number, right? But something that you would think was pretty special, right? And um, nobody else has ever run under 445, you know, and they've coached 500 other athletes, Okay. What's more likely that you're going to run 405 or that you're never going to break 440 or 445? You know, like, I think it's pretty obvious what the answer is. But, you know, that elite bias, that, you know, mythologization of, you know, I'm the special person, um, you know, is very powerful and, and it's very much a siren song that I think lures us, you know, onto the rocks of poor decision making. And I think what we really want to be cultivating okay, isn't this idea of like conforming to things where we're responding to how do I alleviate my feelings of anxiety? I think we want to be in this space where we're working towards um, immersion and we want to like cultivate the immersion complex. And I think that's the maximum state of engagement. When we're maximally engaged, that's when we generate maximum practice because that immersion is something that we want to sustain. That's the intrinsic motivation is the desire to feel good. And immersion is something that feels good. Okay. It, it elevates us out of kind of a humdrum alienation, uh, alienated existence. And it gives us a sense of meaningfulness and purpose. And I'm sure a lot of people have experienced immersion. It could be reading books, watching TV shows, watching movies, playing video games. Maybe it's like eating something, cooking something. Um, But that's, you know, listening to your favorite music, right? It's a sense where you don't really perceive whether or not time goes by, right? This is very much similar to the idea of flow psychology. But getting into that state of immersion, right? In that state, like, because we want to sustain that, we're now going to maximize our behaviors to maximize immersion, right? Kind of in the way that like, you know, when people have a compelling, you know, addiction, right, that they'll maximize the behaviors that are going to allow them to maximize their engagement with that thing. And, you know, so it's not what things to do, right? It's not, should I do five times a mile, but how much rest should I take? How fast should I run them? Okay. Um, It's really like whether or not we do it. Okay, can you run five times a mile twice a week for six months? And that's really hard because it takes a lot of patience. 
okay, to, to sort of wait for that to play out because you're not going to see those results on the scale of four to six weeks. And, you know, to be honest, I, you know, always struggle with this. And I think that's a common phenomenon is you're like, why am I wasting my time? But that concept of I'm wasting my time, that's defaulting to that dichotomy of do behavior, don't behavior, right? Does this not work? Well, if you're doing something that's like kind of challenging, if you given enough time of practice, it will work. That's just what happens. So, you know, too much, I think, um, too much behavior, right, around drawing lines in the stand, in the sand with sticks, okay? Um, you know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to hit moving targets. And I think too many coaches and athletes view training as a process of control versus a process of problem solving. You know, like, I need to control these athletes and get them to do what I want. Or we think that we need to then control ourselves and get our, you know, lazy self to do what our disciplined self wants. And I think ultimately, the challenge isn't uh, forcing conformity um, to what is ultimately an arbitrary system. Okay, I think the challenge is making what might be perceived as conformity to an outsider be to the insider the product of our immersive mindset. To do that, we have to separate ourselves from this sticker labeling view of things and ask ourselves instead, how do we get engaged in what we're trying to do? How can we cultivate the practices that are going to allow us to improve? And we need to be looking at this stuff in that self-referencing context and say, am I improving? Am I getting better? Do I have room to add to this? And if you're feeling that you're either very good at something, very bad at something, or somewhere ambiguously in between those two things, those two states of being, um, ask yourself, how much more room do I have to improve with this current thing that I'm doing? If the answer is not much, then maybe it's time to switch to something else where the potential to improve within that model is much greater. Because if you can improve more in that model, you're going to get closer to your absolute potential. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Black Cats Run. We're on Instagram. If you want to check us out in that space, we welcome you to do so. If you've enjoyed this episode or other episodes, we'd love it if you'd take a moment to recommend it to somebody else that you think would find it interesting. Thanks for listening again. We'll catch you next time.